Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. So here we are, days before the U.S. election, and I thought to myself, let's have a U.S.-focused episode that explains U.S. culture and American politics and why Trump is facing such an uphill battle by talking about hot sauce. Now, it's been widely reported, and I'm being completely serious here, that this is Hillary Clinton's favorite condiment. And full disclosure, I too love everything spicy, but it's also true that more Americans like spicy food than at any time in the history of this country. And on the line with me to discuss the political and cultural implications of Americans' growing appetite for spicy cuisine is Denver Nix, author of the new book, Hot Sauce Nation, America's Burning Obsession. We discuss how spicy peppers became integrated into the mainstream of American diet, largely through public policy decisions that can be traced to a profoundly important date in 20th century American history. And the results of Election Day will also likely reflect that decision made over 50 years ago. So I was glad to have this conversation before the election, combining two of my favorite topics, hot, spicy stuff and American politics. And the book is great. Do go check it out. I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with Denver Nix. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So Denver, I I thought about you at the checkout line in Home Depot last week. They were selling sriracha-flavored beef jerky. I thought to myself, (laughs) there is the thesis of Hot Sauce Nation uh, right Uh, there, staring me at the face. I love that. I love that. That's that's a beautiful little like poetic moment that encapsulates so much of what hot sauce nation is about and what hot sauce, this, what the story of hot sauce tells us about, you know, the, the, the story of the United States over the last 50 years or so. And then I thought to myself, wow, the fact that they are selling sriracha flavored beef jerky at a home Depot probably means that Donald Trump's chances of, of winning election are, are likely doomed or at least very, very difficult. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, what that says is that you think of hot sauce, I'm mean, sorry, you think of Home Depot and even something like beef jerky, and they kind of speak to this macho slash laboring class demographic that the Trump campaign is supposedly speaking to and claims to be speaking for. Um, the fact that there's sriracha flavored beef jerky kind of, to me, I guess that is just a really beautiful poetic way of showing how uh, hot sauce has kind of infiltrated all sectors of society. And you have this, you have something like beef jerky sold at Home Depot, where, you know, a construction worker or a, a contractor may go buy it on the way checking out buying a sriracha flavored 
beef jerky, which is beef jerky that is flavored to taste like a concoction made by a Vietnamese immigrant who emigrated from South Vietnam uh, in the 70s after the war. Yeah, I mean, it sort of like speaks to this mainstreaming of these ex- like once exotic flavors, which is a process you right. detail in your book, uh, but also accompanies, I think, some key democrat- demographic shifts that have occurred in this country over the last 50 years or so. And demographic shifts probably would not have been possible um, without John F. Kennedy. And, you know, in your book, you point to sort of the key date that you could probably draw like a pretty straight line uh, between the uh, sriracha flavored be- beef jerky at that checkout counter in Home Depot to a-, a single date in 1963, June 11th, 1963. That morning, a uh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk named uh, Thich Quang Duc sat down on a cushion at an intersection in Saigon and set himself on fire. That photograph obviously has become famous. Um, it became famous instantly. It's, I think it's the cover of a Rage Against the Machine album now, but that photograph came to represent for a lot of people um, early on in the Vietnam War. This is 1963, remember, um, but it illustrated what was going on in the Vietnam War and how uh, troubled that war was was going to be. And it was it was he set himself on in protest against sort of U.S. policy. That's right. Yes, he 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 set himself on fire in protest of um, the uh, persecution of Buddhists by the Catholic president of South Vietnam, the the American supported president of South Vietnam. So uh, that's right. He he set himself on fire protesting American policy in v- in South Vietnam, uh, protesting the American supported government there. And that, of course, is, a, is an early indication that what that America's policy in the Vietnam War was um, troubled, to say the least, from the very beginning, that maybe we didn't have such a clear mandate to go in and clean house in Vietnam. Um, and that photograph was disseminated all around the world. Um, newspapers all over the world saw it. Of course, President Kennedy saw the, the, the photograph in the paper, um, and a number of other interesting things happened that day. That's also the day that George Wallace, the segregationist governor of Alabama, stands on the, in the doorway to the public university there to prevent two black applicants from enrolling in school. That's also, and later on that day, um, Medgar Evers is assassinated by the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, the, the civil Italy. rights leader. That's right. The civil rights leader, Medgar Evers, is, is assassinated by the Klan in Mississippi. And of course, later on that summer, Dr. King gives his, I have a dream speech in DC. Um, it's kind of this, it's just a, a day that I picked because of the con- confluence of these events. And, uh, and then one much smaller, less newsworthy event as it were, um, during the day, but, um, about 10 o'clock in the morning, Washington DC time, Jack Kennedy is, you know, at the white house, um, looking at the news of the day, preparing for his day, going about the business of being president. And he stops for a minute in the, I think, the colonnade next to the, the Rose Garden. There he meets with a group of delegates from the, like, the Italian Migration Committee who are advocating for, for a reform in, the, immigra- in the, Ameri- the United States immigration policy, which up to that point had been overtly racist and had essentially privileged immigration from 
Northern Europe from places, frankly, that don't eat very spicy food. And this, this group of advocates from the Italian Migration Committee are, call, are just meeting with the president to say, hey, look, we want to reform America's immigration policy to make it more equitable. That, you know, in that meeting, the president says that he agrees we need to do this. And that whole movement toward changing America's immigration policy becomes part of a, the broader movement toward creating a more equitable, less overtly racist society. So the president develops these you know, three signature pieces of legislation, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and the Immigration Act of 1965. Of course, as we know, President Kennedy is assassinated. And as re- partly as a result of his assassination, the political will is there to pass these three signature pieces of legislation under the mm-hmm. under the Johnson administration, and, uh, which transformed American society. And just uh, I just I what's important to me about this moment in history is that the Immigration Act of '65 is ultimately a result of America's civil rights movement. That the Kennedy administration was you know moved into transforming America's immigration policy and creating a less overtly racist society on a number of fronts as a result of the long work that America's civil rights activists have been doing for decades and decades. Can can you talk a little bit about how the um, pre-1965 immigration policy was so overtly racist and and as you say also as as a side effect um did not preference countries uh immigrants from countries with strong sort of spicy pepper traditions up to roughly very roughly speaking kind of the turn of the century the turn of the last century there was no immigration policy really um as long as you could make it to a state the states themselves handled um immigrants coming in and whether or not they wanted to accept people typically on the basis of, you know, their, their health, um, whether they were sick, they might be turned away for that reason, but there was no real national immigration policy for most of the first century or so of American history. Thereafter, you get things like the Chinese exclusion act, which is, I mean, that the, the overt racism is in the name. It was an act that excluded. Yeah, they're not not subtle about what they're trying to do there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, then there was no. You know, it was a different time. There was no need for dog whistles. Uh, dog whistling at that time. Um, and <clears throat> you have that. Um, you know, something like the Chinese Exclusion Act, and then a number of different you know moves legislatively and socially build up to the. I think it's called the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1924, something like that. You essentially had an immigration regime that sought to freeze the ethnic makeup of the United States as it was in the year 1924. So all of the slots available to immigrants were were doled out to countries based upon the number of people from those countries already represented in the United States in the mid-20s. The effect of that was that you had space for immigrants from Ireland, from England, of course, from uh, all of the countries of Scandinavia, from Germany. You you had some slots for you know immigrants from places like Italy to a degree, but much less so, which is why that group on the, the Italian Migration Immigration Committee mm-hmm. wanted to change the law. And you had because you're you're freezing immigration at that point, you had the Chinese Exclusion Act in place for decades before that. You are effectively blocking immigration from Asia, for example. 
um, you're blocking immigration from Africa because they're not, they're of course not counting the people who were kidnapped from Africa and enslaved and their descendants. Those are not counted as African um, migrants for purposes of this immigrant of this nationality act. So immigration from Africa and from uh, Asia is effectively blocked. Um, you don't see a lot of uh, a, a huge influx of immigration from the Americas uh, into the United States at this point, part because there just was there's a separate issue with respect to Mexico and um, the the kind of open border situation that we that the United States had along its southern border um, allowed for free flowing for, for, for much more of a free, free flow of immigration between the two countries such that you had a lot of migrant workers um, and people who would come to the United States and work, earn American wages and then go back to Mexico. And there was no real need to there was no need for them to immigrate. It wasn't seen as like a problem either back then. Right. It was seen just as like a, a fact of life and, and a feature. Exactly. Just, yeah, just a feature of life precisely. And and people, you know, moving more freely between those two countries, which at that time, of course, it was, it was even, even more recent in history that Texas, for example, was, um, was its own country and a part of Spain and all the rest of it. So you had just more people flowing freely back and back and forth between the borders. And, um, later on you get the Bracero program, which is put in place to, try to facilitate um, migrant workers, um, temporary workers in the same way and kind of put an official structure around that. So, but go ahead. Sorry. So, so, so I'm saying, so, so this, um, this system though, all, all pretty much changed in, in 1965 with the passage of the immigration law. Um, how did the new immigration law um, give preference to countries or enable people from countries with, you know, spicy food traditions uh, to come into the United States and, and sort of how did that start to change um, like the, the American cultural landscape in, in terms of how we approach, you know, uh, the spiciness of our food and, and, and how we eat. Yeah. So the, the immigration act of 65 basically puts in place an immigration regime where you have a number of slots for each hemisphere of the globe. So rather than having, particular nationalities preferenced. You just have immigration slots from like the Eastern Hemisphere, for example. Um, The effect of that, of course, is that all of these slots that had been reserved for places like England and Norway, um, Sweden, which had for a long time largely gone unused because immigration from those places had dropped off precipitously. those slots are suddenly available to people from Vietnam, from the Philippines, Cambodia, Laos, China, um, places where historically people had eaten spicier food, where chilies were a more important part of the cuisine. Um, and that led fairly in fairly short order to a dramatic influx of immigration from those parts of the world, from South Asia, from East Asia, uh, from the Middle East, from Africa, from Southeast Asia. Um, you also had immigration increasing from uh, Mexico, in, in large part due to the fact that by closing off uh, the border to migrant workers, you created a, we created a situation in which 
for people to work in the United States, they had to immigrate here. Um, and that sparked a massive influx of immigration from Mexico into the U.S. Those people brought with them cuisine uh, that is a lot spicier than the kind of cuisine that people would have eaten at a time in 1924 when our immigration policy reflected a country made up of like the English and Scandinavians, right? Um, now there are parts of the parts of the United States, like Southern Louisiana, the Southwest, the Southwestern United States and the influence of Mexico felt there. Um, Southern California, of course, and a few little spots like in St. Augustine, Florida, where uh, the, the, the chili and spicy food had been an important part of the culinary culture there for a long time. But broadly speaking, in a country made up of the of immigrants from Ireland, England, um, in Scandinavia, Germany, you're not going to find tremendously spicy food in you know 1970. Um, but you get an influx of immigrants from India, from China, uh, from Southeast Asia, from Africa, and suddenly they bring with them cuisine that incorporates the chili in a way that we had never seen before. So people, I'm 32 years old, people my parents' age grew up in a country where, you know, my dad gets sick and the old, the old, the, what he wants, uh, the kind of home, you know, home remedy for a cold is chicken soup, right? That's what, mm -hmm. you know, it's here. I, as a 32 year old, grew up in a country where there was just a much more diverse um, array of cuisines of food from from around the world, much of it a lot spicier than what my dad grew up with. Um, and when I'm sick, I want a bowl of pho, which is yeah. basically the same thing in a way, but um, you know, it tends to incorporate chilies a little bit more. It's brothier. Yeah, uh, that's that's hilarious. Yeah, just, my my uh, wife was sick uh, the other week, and we went right to the uh, the local Vietnamese place to get a bowl of pho. Right. Yeah. Um, so there. So so there you go. Now, have I know that that you know you are also a, a political reporter. Um, I mean, have you sort of thought through the sort of political implications <laughs> of the mainstreaming of this kind of once exotic cuisine into the fabric of um, the American diet? To, you know, to the point where we said earlier that you can get like sriracha beef jerky at, at the checkout line in Home Depot. Like, what are are the political implications of that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, we're seeing the political implications of that play out in real time right now, right? One of the big uh, issues that Donald Trump has built his campaign around is immigration and a backlash against exactly the kind of immigration that, that we're talking about, a backlash against the immigration that came as a result of the Immigration Act of 1965. And the the way that the American, the demographic makeup of the United States has Really, it really has changed quite dramatically in the last 40 years. I think this year, unless I'm mistaken, this year was the first year in which the United States was officially no longer a primarily white and Christian country. Um, a part of that is because of white people who do not ascribe to a particular religion. But what that is, that change in and of itself, for the first time, the United States is no longer primarily white and Christian, marks um, a major signpost in the direction that we're going toward a country that eventually will be, will not be majority white, um, <clears throat> will not be majority Christian and will, will, will reflect, uh, the, 
religions and ethnicities of immigrants from a much more diverse array of countries than we had before. That's what the the story of hot sauce reflects um, those demographic changes. And what we're seeing with the Trump campaign, of course, is a backlash against that in part um, and a backlash against a, a reaction to, you know, economic realities, um, economic changes that have hurt communities around the country in a lot of cases where people um, feel that the influx of immigration from the quote unquote global south or what have you um, is the cause of those um, of economic downturn or the stealing of jobs and so on and so forth. Yet, yet those same people will, will gladly eat the hatch chili burger from, uh, you know, from, from Hardee's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, a lot of us can love spicy food um, and still and- be racist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose it, it's it's. But it's I wonder possible, though if you know, well, yeah, if if like the, you know, the the kind of cultural shifts that we've seen over time since 1965, including the civil rights movement, which also included this massive immigration reform, which, as you you know, detail in the book, brings in sort of an exotic series of of cuisines, many of them you know spicy. Um, if if sort of that kind of mainstreaming of spicy foods sort of makes us all a little more culturally tolerant and makes a Trump presidency that much more difficult to to imagine or, or to come to fruition. I mean, the yeah. fact that, you know, we are so now exposed to, you know, diversity in, in cultures, which is manifest sometimes in, in cuisines and, and sometimes in, in spicy cuisines, um, you know, makes it harder for someone like Trump to become president. Yeah, I would, I would certainly personally, I would like, I would hope so. I would like to see that be the case. Um, and I, I, to me, one of the fascinating things though about this, the history of cuisine and uh, of of chilies in particular, the story of hot sauce, is the way that it reveals that we have always had cultural exchange around the world. Right? Chilies are a plant that all come from the Americas. Were not present in the old world, not present in Europe, Asia, or Africa until after 1492, when Christopher Columbus accidentally bumped into the Caribbean. Um, that that plant did not exist in the old world, and for that reason, old world cuisines, Indian food, Chinese food, African food, um, was not spicy in the way that chilies makes things spicy. The chemical capsaicin didn't exist in the old world. Those those cuisines themselves are spicy because of intercultural exchange. A lot of it, of course, I mean, what, what I'm talking about, what I'm saying, that is colonialism mm-hmm. uh, and that there's there's a there's a darkness in there, of course. But those cuisines themselves are spicy because of intercultural exchange. Um, and that remains that that's that same phenomenon is true for all kinds of food. I mean, the, the beef jerky example that you mentioned a minute ago brought to mind an interesting fact about the history of beef jerky, which this is kind of an aside, but beef jerky at Home Depot, you think about it as kind of like this manly food that, you know, construction worker, America, rah, rah, rah. But jerky is a word that ultimately comes from Quechua. Um, I think the word is charqui in Quechua uh, was Hispanicized um, into charqui or jerky in the Caribbean um, during the Spanish colonial era there. Um, but that way of cooking meat to create jerky originated, or at least the naming of it or, or, that we use today, originated 
in the Andes. It's a, it's a Quechua word, right? So you have a word from the Andes that comes into the Caribbean that makes its way into the United States. And now it's flavored by uh, a hot sauce made by a Vietnamese refugee in the 70s. The, the story of cuisine and uh, in my book, The Story of Hot Sauce and Chilies, reflects both the fact that we've seen, a, a, a really, we have seen a massive change in the cultural makeup of the United States in the last several decades. I think it has enriched this, this culture and enriched our community. It's certainly enriched our culinary universe and uh, enriched our dinners. But it's also true that we've always had a, a mix of cultures. We've, all, we've always had cultural exchange at that level at different times and it's in its own way. And um, that's, that cultural exchange is what makes us great. It's what, it's what makes life worth living and what, ma- what makes um, you know, food more delicious and more exciting and what, what creates beautiful art and beautiful culinary experiences. All right. Well, Denver, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Mark. This was a blast. All right. Thank you all for listening. That was fun, fascinating, and we'll see you after Election Day.